There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. Adam Grant, a nondescript kind of man found guilty of murder and sentenced to the electric chair. Like every other criminal caught in the wheels of justice, he's scared, right down to the marrow of his bones. But it isn't prison that scares him, the long, silent nights of waiting, the slow walk to the little room, or even death itself. It's something else that holds Adam Grant in the hot, sweaty grip of fear. Something worse than any punishment this world has to offer. Something found only in... The Twilight Zone. Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo. And in the southern layer, 80s E. And we have right. picked up something in the fifth dimension. That's, that's right. Extraterrestrial of unknown origins. In the ultimate third person, Kyle. Kyle Zayner has joined us for this episode All right. of the Twilight Zone. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. So Eric, you want to take it away? Sure. Uh, no more introductions. We're just going right into just this. Jump right well, everyone knows Kyle. Here. We've already had a little tiff at the beef before we even started, so <laughs> I figure we better just go ahead and reserve no, the right no, to no, battle no, it out no, at no, the no, end no. because this is one of those episodes. There's only a few times where Eric and I agree on an episode when they're really good, when they're really bad, and then there's episodes like this where one of us likes it and one of us hates it, and then we have Kyle's opinion. So yeah, we'll have He's to the find. Tiebreaker. Yeah, we will have to find out. It looks so like Eric, I might be going alone on this one. That's all right. Take it away. All right, this uh, episode is entitled Shadow Play. It's the Twilight Zone season two, episode number twenty six. It was directed by Char- uh, Scar- excuse me, John Brom. I'm already stumbling over, and it was written by Charles Beaumont. And it was based on the short story called, I'm going to mispronounce this, it's a German word, Traumerii, Traumerii, I don't know, it's a, it's a really short story, uh, was an adaptation for this particular episode. Uh, it w- was originally aired on May the 5th, 1961, which brings us to our favorite segment in the episode. <laughs> on this day in history. All right, I'm going to hand this off to Kyle, and he's going to read all about this day in history for May the 5th, 1961. Tell us what happened on that day, Kyle. All right. And May 5th, 1952, we have the Lucy Does a TV commercial, also known as the... (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I did it on purpose. Let's see if we can do it. It's a very famous episode. Vitamin Gaven episode of I the episode of I Love Lucy premieres, guarding a sixty-eight percent of television viewers. Now, let's think about that: sixty-eight percent of television viewers, and that—that's huge for. It's huge, yeah. Have you ever seen that episode, Kyle? It's where she's drinking the. It's like I got alcohol in it, right? Yeah. And she keeps doing. She's basically doing a commercial, 
and a spot, and she keeps messing up, and she has to keep drinking it. Vita Megimin or whatever it's yeah, called, yeah. and she gets drunk in the middle. Yeah, it's, it's always insane, funny. like the errors of one or two channels being like, you know, you have all viewers in America, so yeah, it's like yeah. the insane numbers back then. Like for today, no show's ever been successful as shows from 40 years ago. It's yeah. crazy stuff like that in your head. Um, next up, we have in 1962, May 5th, we have the West Side Story soundtrack album goes number one and stays number one for a whopping 54 weeks, which is more than 20 weeks longer than any other album, to my knowledge anyways, and also to the paper's knowledge. And then also, finally, we have in 1997, the episode of Married with Children's, Married with Children's final episode on Fox TV. Eric, did you like the uh, Married with Children? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I liked it. It was, it was all right. Fun. I've seen a few episodes. I haven't, I'm not like a faithful watcher of it, but yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. I think it holds right. up relatively well. Yeah. yeah. So that concludes on this day in TV and film history for May 5th. Thank you, Kyle, for Thank doing Thank you, Eric, for the opportunity. I kind of set you up a little bit there. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to I apologize. Yeah. Ahead of time. I could have spent so, an hour on that. Still not got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me either. So the total production cost for this particular episode was looking at $50,115.45. And when we adjust that for inflation, again, it's about tenfold adjustment. Uh, we like to give you these figures. It's about uh, half a million bucks, five hundred twenty-five thousand nine sixty-seven, and a nine hundred twenty-two percent increase. The dates of rehearsal for this particular episode are March the sixteenth and seventeenth of nineteen sixty-one, and then the dates, three dates for filming, March the seventeenth, twentieth, and twenty-first of nineteen sixty-one. Three days and of filming. That's incredibly impressive. Yeah, with that, Jimbo, I'm going to hand it off to you for the cast of this episode, Shadow Play. All right, for the cast of Shadow Play, we have Dennis Weaver, who played Adam Grant. Uh, he was in a movie called Touch of Evil in 1958. Uh, Harry Towns, he played Henry Ritchie. A little thing I found about him is he was an ordained Episcopal priest in, I believe it was Huntsville, Alabama. Um, he was in uh, Star Trek in 1966, where he played Rager. Uh, he was in a bunch of TV shows, including the great, legendary, Incredible Hulk in 1981. Um, so a very, very storied career there. Uh, Wright King uh, played Paul Carson. Kyle, you might remember him from Planet of the Apes in 1968, where he played Dr. Galen. And he was also in two episodes of The Twilight Zone. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, William Edmondson uh, played Jiggs. Uh, he was in two episodes of The Twilight Zone as well. Uh, Anne Barton played Carol Ritchie. Uh, she was also in two episodes of The Twilight Zone, but she was also in the movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane in 1962, where she played Cora Hudson. You ever seen that movie? No, not. Betty Davis and uh, yeah, Joan first, Crawford. I've probably seen the first ten minutes she of it. She cooks her dog and gives it to her. Uh, Bernie Ham- Huh? What? <laughs> uh, Bernie Hamilton played Coley. Uh, he was in the great... Episode or TV show Starsky and Hutch, if you remember that, Eric, yep. where he played Captain Harold Doby. I think it was for like ninety-one episodes, seventy-one watch episodes. A TV or show someday. Yeah, there's a lot of good shows you missed, Kyle. That car was awesome too. Yeah. Um, Thomas Nilo played Phillips. Uh, I only seen him in the Twilight Zone. Nothing really out stood out outside of that. Uh, Mac Williams played Father Beeman. Uh, he was in the original Cape Fear in 1962, where he played uh, Doctor Lowney. Uh, Gene Roth uh, was the judge. He was in a movie called The Spider in 1958. That's got to be one of them black and white awesome movies. Jay Jonah Sameson hates it. Um, then we have a bunch of uncredited people. Um, we had John Close, who was a guard. Uh, he was in Sudden Danger in 1955. Howard Culver, who was a jury foreman. He was in Halloween 2 in 1981. 
Uh, Jack Hyde was an attorney. He played in Captains of the Clouds in 1942. Kenner G. Kemp was a juror. Uh, he was one of our spies is missing in 1966 was the movie he's famous for. Kermit Maynard was a juror. Uh, he was in The Fighting Texan in 1937. And yes, last but not least, the legendary great Rod Serling himself as the narrator and self-host where he was the creator of The Twilight Zone and also... Um, uh, what's the name of that other one he did? Uh, not the Outer Limits. Uh, the Night Gallery. Night Gallery. Night so, Gallery. Um, but that's it for your cast for All Shadow right. Play. Thank you, Jimbo. Let's uh, talk about a plot for this particular episode. When Adam Grant is found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced, he lashed out telling everyone that he will not be murdered again. That's a big clue, by the way, at the beginning of the episode. Grant claims to be having a reoccurring nightmare where he is found guilty and executed. The characters around him change, and so he argues that all of them will vanish if he dies. It leads newspaperman Paul Carson to question what is real and what might just be a figment of someone else's imagination. D.A. Henry Ritchie visits Grant in jail and decides to try and do something about his claims, no matter how far-fetched his claims might be. <laughs> little radio intonation there. <laughs> so when we open the episode, by the way, this episode, it alternates back and forth basically from two scenes, two sets. It's courtroom versus the home of uh, D.A. Henry Ritchie. So we, we alternate back and, and forth. And the jail cell. In, in the jail. Well, really, yeah, exactly. We really only have courtroom at the beginning and the end. And the jail and the, the home alternating back and forth. So we opened in a courtroom, and you'll notice the use of light and shadow, Jimbo, like that this, was right off the bat. So, that was excellent. Okay. So I got one uh, gold star for it, for the for the use of light and shadow. Um, the verdict of the jury for the defendant, Adam Grant, he is found guilty, and the judge offers sentencing. And uh, the close-up shot reveals that Grant is mouthing the exact words of the judge's sentence. And it's our first clue that something's up, right? And he mouths the words, It is the sentence of this court uh, that for the brutal and despicable crime of murder in the first degree, you shall be put to death by means of electrocution. By the way, we talked off um, recording about the 1980s version. Just by way of side note, if you ever, uh, you probably want to <laughs> go back and watch it. But they substitute electrocution for the hangman's noose ah, as far as in this form of ex- execution. Um, so the dramatic next few lines by Grant set the mood for the, really the whole episode. He says, no, not again. I won't die again. You can't make me uh, die again. Oh, God, please, please tell him, Mr. District Attorney, that uh, this isn't real. Make him understand that they're only having a dream or a dream that they're having so that kind of sets the stage uh, anything stick out in the first scene do you got uh, you guys are kind of weighing off a little bit um no i think it's interesting the idea of the panic and the idea that the story focuses on the characters um that are part of his imagination instead of the main character himself i think mm-hmm. like i feel like the 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 prisoner the person who's supposed to be the author the author of this world effectively is kind of a side character in this overall role it's more about the characters being focused on all the ones that are part of his imagination and their existential panic therein so yeah. it's pretty interesting there i was on my phone trying to look up the um the belief that the whole universe is constructed inside your head trying to find the name to it but that's what i was going to try and uh, reference as a kind of an idea there and um, this film kind of playing with that um that idea right um, like, without the label on it i, I don't know what that um, 
um, the label of that universe actually is. That like was the philosophical idea that the whole world only exists within your mind, basically yeah. like that. What was that movie, um, uh, Stranger Than Fiction, where Will Ferrell, remember where... There was an author who's writing, writing his entire writing life. His life. So, yeah, yeah. yeah um, that was a good movie, too. Um, I instantly thought of The Matrix, kind of, when I... To a degree, well, yeah. Yeah, just like... You know. mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting the the idea that like you know he's saying he's in a recursive nightmare, um, this kind of like this 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 loop rather of this time loop that he seems to be trapped in forever. Um, but it doesn't say like it's like you know there's no reality where he wakes up and then goes back to sleep and has the exact same dream. It seems like this is just a recurring thing. There's no break in between him. Well, this I, is have, I, have, I have an interesting death. point well, at the end that so I'll make. Well, about uh, that. That, that's that's my take on this. Here's my here's what I wrote down, and this is the only thing I have written down because so I'm not going to hear from you for the rest of the episode. Well, I mean I'll I'll throw in a little. <laughs> thing but he says that he wakes up screaming yeah okay mm-hmm. yet at the end of this movie or episode he doesn't scream when he, they they pull the thing and just shows him back in the courtroom back in the court so my question was does he ever wake up or is he just stuck in this dream world or is it you know just a dream night after night he wakes up goes to work like all of us comes back home falls asleep has the same dream or so. nightmare i think yeah. so the the, the yeah the dialogue leads you to believe that he actually wakes up and this is just something that reoccurs night after night but he has a regular life yeah. during the day right yeah but and i mean each time he has I mean, a stream everyone's not a, like an endless of loop of not waking yeah. that's, up see this kind of, and, and and i'm thinking to myself well if this is the case and if this is the case then i would throw this back to uh the episode perchance to dream that we did where the guy every time that he would fall asleep would meet that lady that yeah. was trying to kill him <laughs> and that's what I was saying. Well, why didn't this guy just try to stay up? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that. I yeah. think Charles Beaumont wrote that episode, too. I'd have to go back and check. Or maybe they were directed by the same director. But I know there's some similarity. And then I'll talk a little bit about the parallel, too, to, to the episode 22 yeah. that we did. And Mirror Image. Yeah. And I would say, like, outside of this film's execution of idea, of uh, this idea, I do love this idea, too, because it allows for a great deal of kind of meta-storytelling, the idea that every character becomes self-aware that they're playing a specific role, mm-hmm. and then how do they kind of act against that type, specifically to try and break these recursive loops they seem to be in. And yeah. I do kind of love that idea, too, with the kind of storyline as well. I think, uh, what was the, of course, like a, a Groundhog Day and other films can, can kind of right. have similar concepts to them that I really always really appreciate, because it just it allows opportunities for crazy inventive stories we told so yeah. I appreciate that in this film itself so and this film was like probably I, this 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 episode is uh, you know one of the earliest depictions of that idea in cinema and film entirely so that's really impressive and not, that in our own right for being one of the first to pioneer it really so yeah. I appreciate that so that kind of sets the stage uh, really the courtroom scene kind of sets the table for the rest of the episode uh, I'm just going to briefly touch on a few things is because again I, I mentioned earlier that we sort of alternate back and forth but I'll just try to hit some highlights. Rod's introduction, I, re- I have a quote from it. I really like it. It stuck out, and I'll, of course, insert it into the uh, audio. But to, so he says, like every other criminal caught in the wheels of justice, he's scared right down to the marrow of his bones. I think he really encapsulated what fear looks like in in words, like what a criminal really feels like when the, you yeah. know, you see all those uh, videos and clips of, uh, you know, when judgment is passed down to like certain criminals, like pass out because they're just overwhelmed by the weight of the fact that you know, yeah, it's like a fire it's a burning light. through your spine. Yeah, it's just a yeah. life sentence. It's like down to the marrow of your bones. So I thought that was really yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah, like a core you never knew was even there, just burning inside. Just yeah, yeah kind of that feeling. Yeah, can imagine. Um, so in the jail, we meet a harmonica player. Well, a harmonica is playing in the background. We don't really hear from what's his name, Cooley. I think. 
we don't really he does he has one or two lines I think um, but it's interesting that Jig's character stuck out to me uh, we meet Cooley and Jig's and they realize uh, excuse me Grant realizes that their character's out of a bad movie that he's seen right so he's he's adapted these characters that are in his subconscious and they, they play roles and by the way the roles alternate each time he has a nightmare they alternate back and forth I, I guess this is sort of the essence of the, you know I can't quote it verbatim but the the introduction between light and shadow this is kind of the the quintessential episode for that what the twilight zone really is because you know when you're in your subconscious you're not really awake and you're not really asleep that that's kind of where the twilight zone dwells um but um going back uh grant gives an exact description of what uh, in excuse me he gives a, an exact description of what death by the electric chair looks like to jigs right and he he that's where jimbo you were talking about it earlier he gives a full-on description you know, walk down the hall, you go to a green door. 70, 76, 76, 72 yeah. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And that exactly. was some cool cinematography there, too, where it was kind of blurry to the mm-hmm. side, and it showed him walking down and all that. And uh, he he knows exactly what's going to happen because it's happened over and over and over again. So, um, it, it, you know, he there really aren't... Which I have another question, which I'll bring that up later. But uh, so he... After... The, you know, he gives this full description. We come to the end, and then the last words that Grant say is "flip the switch," and then instantly we go to the oven. In the, yeah, in the, the, home. the 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 lady, the the wife is pulling out two steaks, which look delicious. Yeah, they do look good. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, we meet. Well, Paul Carson was in the courtroom, but Paul Carson is um, at the home of Henry Ritchie and his wife. And Paul is loaded. He's drunk. And by the way, the short story uh, by Charles Beaumont starts at the home scene. There is no courtroom scene, I guess. Mm. It start, the, the actual story starts here in the home. But yeah. um, he, he, he starts to believe Grant's crazy story. And he tells Richie, like, you can't prove that he's wrong. And Paul tries to persuade uh, Richie that... There might be a possibility that everything is just a dream uh, inside Grant's head. And a uh, quote from the episode, he says, Go down and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. It wouldn't do you any good. You only listened to him once. That's That was enough, Hank. For my sake, please, please go down and see him and uh, let him tell you. Please, Hank. So he's persuading him to, to go down and hear Grant's story again of... Yeah. yeah, I think one thing really uh, incredible too that I think is very odd is that Grant is aw- he has the perspective of the camera in this dream that he knows what's going on outside of the prison cell that he's in. We kind of cut back to those scenes, and he's also aware of those same things too, like what's being cooked in the oven, what those characters are doing, the existential crisis he's putting in them. And I don't know if he's aware of them like as he's having that dream or after he wakes up, he's aware of what they're going on in their side, their kind of head too. It's very interesting, kind of like a, a take where it's like I don't know. How what he knows, but I know he knows far more than he should as a person with limited uh, uh, ability to see and hear outside right. of prison cells or being the dreamer of the inventor of that universe. Like he knows everything. Seems like after he wakes up, it seems like, and this new loop is now him relaying information. Like hey, it won't be sick this time. It'll be a pot roast or wherever it is. Yeah. yeah, I wondered how he knew that. Like, how did he know later in the episode? How did he know that it was switched from steak to pot roast? That was one thing that I was like, 
Hmm. Yeah. It really doesn't elaborate very much on. Yeah, you're right. So, so he has uh, some like degree he has of knowledge of things that are happening outside yeah. of his. That's because he thought it. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but like, but you would think that it would be at stake every time. Yeah. And in but his why cell does in the, the food cell, change? The people change roles, yeah. and the food changes. Yeah. But, right. And if it was just from his perspective in the prison cell, the only time he would meet those characters is when they come visit him in the prison. He would never have knowledge about what they're doing in their homes outside of his, you know, his immediate dream perception. Terrible. No, it, it, it's it's simultaneously it's it can be you can be seen as a plot hole or it can be seen as kind of like a meta commentary of filmmaking itself. The idea of like how much the, you know does the viewer know more than the actual characters in this case? In this case, the character knows as much as the viewer does, which is really odd when he's stuck in a prison cell. And that's kind of an interesting, yeah, I don't know, meta spin to it to a degree, you yeah. know, intentional or not. So we we go back to the jail as we alternate back. So D. A. Ritchie goes to the jail and Grant. Adam Grant here, he's expecting the DA to find flaws in the Matrix. Like, uh, well, actually, Grant tries to fla- find flaws in the Matrix, like um, the prisoners wearing watches. He remember he makes that comment, mm-hmm. like that wouldn't be allowed. That that you know because of the breaking glass and on all the he makes a comment about that. So he's trying to find flaws in his own dream mind state or whatever yeah we're trying to acknowledge like the cliches of the moment too like he was sentenced in the same day that he was accused and put in jail for death right. row like he's on death row and being sentenced on the same day you know there's, yeah that you know, wouldn't happen in real know, life or right. the fellow prisoners it's just a classic guy playing harmonica and an old timer who yeah. will tell you how it all is you exactly. know like it's cliche in a way even mm-hmm. for the time um, um so richie kind of pushes back and he has questions he raises certain questions he says we all disappear uh, when you wake up, Grant, uh, what about our parents and grandparents and everybody that's never heard of Grant? Or what about them? What about us when we sleep and dream? Why are you Why are you scared and you have uh, you have to wake up sometimes? So why don't you just lay back and enjoy it? Basically, ask them. Well, what happens to the grandparents? To our grandparents? And he and Grant has, a, of course, he has a response for that. And what about people that you've never heard of? And then he says, what about us when we sleep? Like do and, and Grant says, well, you dream what I want you to dream because you're all part of this huge, you know, dream that I'm having. Yeah. The universe exists as long as he's the one dreaming Right. It. But outside of that, it doesn't, which is... And so Richie asks him, well, why terrifying. don't... If you know you're going to die, and you know what's going to happen, and you know you're going to wake up, why don't you just lay back and enjoy it? And, and then he gives the example of, like, uh, what was it? Uh, it was something that we've talked about on previous episodes because there are some similarities to this episode to other ones like have you ever ever had a dream that was so so I'll ask you guys ever had a dream that was so gripping that you were for sure it was real and I think in the one of the previous episodes Jimbo talked about walking his wife down a dark alley and having that reoccurring dream that felt so real that he jumped in front of a bullet to save his wife and ended up on the floor. Yeah, landed on a high <laughs> hill or something and yeah. bruised rib. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I still uh, laugh about it. Kyle, what about you? Have you ever had a dream that was super real that you just knew that woke up had in to cold be real sweat. you woke up and your heart was racing? I, I had some reoccurring gyms in my childhood. They were a little yeah. bit, but they were very, uh, they kind of broke reality in ways that never really quite made sense to me. Like, I would always wake up and not understand what was happening in the dream itself oh. um, to a degree, too. But I think this film actually kind of, like, Going outside the dream perspective, it adds an even more terrifying question of, like, what if you met somebody who con- who convinced you that you were part of his imagination mm. <laughs> and, like, actually had a compelling case that you didn't exist outside of his mind and mm. that – and, and if you don't help him, 
you will cease to exist. <laughs> if you were seriously convinced of that, what do you do in that scenario? <laughs> you know, yeah. because if you accept, like, if I don't help this person, well, I will die too well, 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 in an extreme existential way. That's terrifying. I better know? save this for the end. Let me write this okay. down. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. That's so, a terrifying question. I think this episode kind of asked you. Yeah, you know? that's an interesting take. Uh, so I'll just keep moving along. Sorry, go. go ahead. No, no. <laughs> so the proof again, the proof that Grant is telling the truth is that. The steak that his wife, uh, Richie's wife, is cooking will be something else when he goes back home. Again, we talked about how does he know that. We talked about that a little bit earlier. So this steak becomes a pot roast. So we're back in the jail, and Jiggs suggests that Grant tell the story to the governor and basically try to convince him that he is a, he has a loose cog. Basically, you plead insanity, right, to get off, to try to get a stay of execution. Mm-hmm. You, you can't keep, um, you know, sticking to your story about this is all a dream. you got to... He suggests that he change uh, tactics. So Grant tries to convince Jiggs that the world is just an impression of things in his mind that he has derived from movies. Again, uh, Kyle brought up that point. What, what, what if you were in that situation and someone was telling you, "No, you're a figment of my imagination," and you, yeah, he's trying, and to you actually you. believed him. You know, to yeah. a degree, like too, like what do you have to do then in that case to make sure you actually do save them? And like, is it ethical to keep him asleep forever, or is it ethical for you to? in the universe because it never actually mattered in the first place to a degree hmm. you know, yeah it's All a right. terrifying possibility yeah for yeah. sure not so. technically impossible in your respect like when it comes to like, the deep thing of like anything is possible that technically is not impossible to a degree yeah. alright so we transition you're all part of my dreams is what I'm saying <laughs> we transition back to the Richie home and Carol Richie wakes to find uh, Paul and Hank in the living room and refers to them as the brothers Grimm I think we're at that scene right now uh, so they're watching the clock above the fireplace, waiting for midnight. Another cliche, of course, uh, mm-hmm. that we find in movies. Executions always happen at midnight, which isn't... Terrible time in health educations. <laughs> uh, Paul and Hank are anxiously awaiting questions, grappling with, with whether this is real or not. And then we transition back to the jail and cutting of Grant's uh, pants for the execution. I guess in another... they they had some extra film where they actually shot a scene where they're uh, cutting his hair too, but for whatever reason they took it out and maybe they thought that was a little too much. 1960 as far as like, you know, the green mile and the execution process and all that. How but much would they just actually cut your hair and then end up, we didn't use a shot. So you got to recreate yeah. it. So they, they only cut the pants and then in walks the priest. Grant's trying to place all the characters from his real life. And Jiggs is yelling for Grant to wake up the end of the scene then we transition back to the home and then uh, paul is trying to get richie to call in a stay of execution to the governor he says are you going to send a mental incompetent to the chair he asked that question regrettably henry makes the call to the governor but he's asleep this is an emergency wake him up the governor is calling as the clock strikes midnight the call comes into the execution room you see scenes cutaway scenes of that and they're about to throw the switch and then boom we wake up back in the courtroom and we have that light and shadow again like it's it's happening all over again and we see grant in the defendant's chair but all the cast of players around him have changed so jiggs is now the judge and i can't i couldn't place everyone that was changed but uh paul the newspaper editor is now the jury foreman the priest is now the district attorney i think you can really only see him from the back Mm-hmm. His head, I think, in the in the final scene, and then the defense attorney is Phillips, the crazy inmate. Remember, Phillips was the, you know, another cliched. You know, there's always in every prison movie, there's always one mentally incompetent guy that's 
you know, foaming yeah. at the mouth and mm-hmm. barking at the moon. Yeah, the guy who's fully yeah, lost it. Yeah, so he's yeah. changed roles, and now he's uh, the defense attorney. Interesting. Uh... You yeah. guys wanna... The acknowledgement that he's right in this scenario. In this scenario, he is right in Spado's doing. Like, it isn't like a what if scenario or like you know what if he's telling the truth scenario. It's actually like like no, this is the reality we're depicting here. That he's having this thing. Everything he says is true. You know, which is a terrifying prospect of thing. You know, if you ever encountered that in some kind of you know fictional, if you ever encountered that reality, it'd be terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting that he doesn't know who father, the father Beeman is too. He's, yeah, like, he's trying to place. Yeah, he's him. like he's like oh, you must have been one of my one of my teachers or, or my, teacher, one of my yeah. teachers. Now, Eric, I remember every single teacher we ever had. I'm sure you do, too. If you go back and say kindergarten, first grade, mm, second grade, I do. It might be a little harder the farther we go back. but no. well, I mean, I remember all of them. But if this if this guy, father, whatever, he can't place him, has he not been in the dream before and this is a new person that's been brought into this dream? Or it was a background character to some degree, yeah, and then and finally it became a more of a bigger role in this one scenario. So he probably has, like, you know, he has, like, the idea of, like, he has a pool of characters that are always in his mind, and they constantly get rotated out, and eventually some are like, you're in a faint memory log. You know, kind of yeah. like, like, we all have a pool of people in our mind that we kind of recognize as their faces, even if we can't place a name, and then that's, you know, what that father, what the character is, too. I do think it's interesting, though, that is, you know, the man of the cloth is the one character who he doesn't really interest in. You know, exactly. it's, it's, I think it is interesting, the idea that that, you know, he that could be some kind of acknowledgement that he's not possibly recognizing God's authority because well, in this universe he is God. Well, well, because um, of the, because he says, "Oh yeah, your father, so and so. Oh yeah, but you died. Everybody came to your funeral, and a young priest came and took in. So this is somebody that's been dead, yeah, long ago. Yeah. So there's some outside significance of this character thing, right? If you want things, if you if you were doing like a movie adaptation or a book adaptation of the story, uh, like this specific adaptation again. You might go deeper on that specific narrative to be like, why is this character significant to them? And then also why they place him as the priest character. Well, and I think if you were doing a movie, I think it would be better because you could have, you if you went to this dream, you could see everybody, you know where they were from his life previous before he got thrown in the jail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but well, Rod always one of the hour long episodes, but well, you could get him. You got him in season four. Yeah. Yeah, he did. But uh, here's a few trivia facts, and then uh, we can move on to our questions and observations and stuff, which we've already kind of woven in already. But uh, <laughs> that's okay. The episode is likely adapted from uh, writer Charles Beaumont. We talked about that short story, Tremerii, which roughly translates from the German as daydream or uh, Riviere, I can't even pronounce German words, I apologize, which originally appeared in the 1956 issue of Infinity Science Fiction. So this was uh, issued in a, I don't know if that was some sort of publication in science fiction. Uh, The title refers to the ancient art of shadow play or shadow puppetry using opaque figures that cast shadows on clear curtains. Such entertainment is known in countries throughout the world and is presented in theaters by traveling tropes. The musical score, this is interesting, is the same score used in the episode 22, which there, there's one parallel. There are quite a few parallels to 22, the dreaming and recurring dream and all that. Uh, this uh, Shadow Play episode was remade and aired as a segment of the 1985-89 through 89 series of The Twilight Zone on April 4th, 1986. The remake uh, holds closely to the plot of the original episode in which a man on death row claims he's having a recurring dream. Uh, that when he is executed, thus ending the dream, all the people in the dream will be wiped out of existence. And 
I mean, it is almost a shot-for-shot shot remake of uh, this episode. Uh, the song that Cooley plays on his harmonica is Red River Valley. Do you remember that from our early days of learning a musical score? For, what, what was it, a recorder or something? Yeah. <laughs> Learned it like third grade. Mm-hmm. Um, the Richie Living Room and Kitchen was filmed on Stage 5 at Hal Roach Studio. The prison cells, death house, and courtroom were filled filmed on Stage 19 at MGM Lot. One of the reoccurring props on the series is a small white horse that shows up on a living room table and desks. I'd have to go back and really look at that, but apparently it's been this little white horse has been used in several episodes. Uh-huh. Uh, one of being the most unusual camera and the jungle, which I don't think we've gotten to the jungle yet. Actor Adam Wright recalled, I'm ashamed to admit that I found shadow play obscure. Jimbo, you like this? <laughs> I managed, and, and Kyle maybe too, I managed to sort out the character's lines uh, of thought in my two or three scenes well enough to satisfy the director, John Brom. I've seen the show two times and have yet to make it out. Truly a first for me. I always enjoyed working with good friends, my good friends, Dennis Weaver and Harry Towns and Ann Barton, who I had worked with many times. So apparently Adam, uh, or Wright King, didn't think too highly it was of the episode. He just did his lines and that was it. Uh, the Twilight Zone has few pretenses, Serling once commented. It's simply an attempt at a quality half-hour vignette once a week. On occasion, it can fulfill a function as a commentary on a social evil or disparity. But in a half-hour forum, this is a subtle process, and it usually is a second effect to the entertainment involved. In the movie Vanilla Sky from 2001, you guys seen that? I haven't seen it. I know. It's Tom Cruise mm-hmm. movie. The character David Ames dreams he is in Times Square and playing on the Budweiser Jumbotron behind him is a clip of the episode, this particular episode of The Twilight Zone. Interesting. And that concludes our trivia segment. One goof in this um, episode, the judge asks Adam Grant to stand after the head juror reads his sentence. In reality, the defendant is asked to rise before the sentence is read. So there you go. There's one little goof. Questions, observations that we haven't covered so far from either of you guys we can wrap it here's up. my thing you wrote one down yep mm-hmm. um if i'm in this reoccurring nightmare why doesn't he do something different um you see him obviously rush the bench each time mm-hmm. um why not grab a pen and stab yourself in the throat uh why not uh go after the bailiff and get shot why not try to commit suicide in your jail cell why not try to run your head against the doors of the jail if it's really that bad and he wakes up screaming every single day and nothing's changing and night after night after night after night, why not try to change the outcome yourself? You know, I think that's in a few cases that I have reoccurring dreams too. I tend to always make the same decisions. And yeah. I think that's a struggle of a lot of people with reoccurring dreams specifically. I think most people that have reoccurring dreams have the exact same problem. They keep making the same mistake over and over and you're over stuck. again. And you're stuck in that loop. And that's you know part of what the horror is playing on in this dream. But what I'm saying but, is, yeah. if he can change by just thinking the food from steaks to pot roast to chicken, yeah. whatever it was, mm-hmm. then obviously he can change different stuff. That's he should be able to change different stuff. I don't, I don't understand stuff. Yeah. how he can do that. Well, right. he seems to have controls of like some of the details of Maybe. like you know the aesthetics of it. He has control where the cast yeah. goes. He has well, he could say, oh, well, uh, I believe this uh, gel cell is unlocked. Yeah. Yeah, I believe we will lose power when they go to flip the switch. 
stuff like, like that. Like, you, know. you would think, like, yeah, if you were stuck in this scenario, you might be trying to, like, as you're trying to go to bed tonight, you just keep telling yourself, the power will go out before I die, the power will go out before I die, and you keep telling yourself that, and <laughs> maybe you manifest that as a reality in your universe when you go to the bed that night. But he's still clearly in that process of trying to overcome it, too. He Like, he is in a kind of like a Groundhog Day scenario, or, a, you know, a, 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 a Tomorrow Never, not, not Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, or, yeah, Edge of Tomorrow kind of situation, right. where, like, he's trying to make progress to master this scenario. <laughs> he kills him every he single survive, <laughs> But he's still in the scenario of, like, he's still dying every yeah. night. Right. Um, and that's where he's in stuck right now, too. And that's where we're going to leave the story, because we don't know if he ever, ever, ever over, yeah. overcomes this obstacle. You know, All right, i got to tell you this dream I had yesterday. You guys know I slept a long time yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. I told my wife this when I woke up last night about 8 o'clock. So. still remember it? Yeah. Huh? So we have a dog named Bear. And there was these, a guy and a girl coming around, and they had shelter dogs they were bringing around, because if not, they were over 10 years old, they were going to get euthanized. Okay, mm-hmm. so I remember there was like... One was like a uh, golden retriever. Uh, there was another one. I don't really, I think it was like a mix. And then there was this little chihuahua. And dude, and there was another little white like Pomeranian or something. And they were all old. You know what I mean? And the funniest thing that I remember is, you know, you know how you go to a dog and you try to pet him. You know, let him sniff you. Well, I went over the chihuahua. <laughs> and I went to go pet him on the head. And he went, no. It's just in like a yeah. Mexican voice. And I thought it was the funniest thing you that I... Have a total bell dog. Yeah, he, just like, he just went, no. <laughs> I was like, okay. I'm not petting him. <laughs> Should no. be the new Taco Bell no. ad. He's like, no. Commercial. no. no. <laughs> it was a fun. He just looked at me like, no. no. I was like, <laughs> no, you're like, he spoke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now you're going to dream that every night. I want to get a chihuahua, though, if he could go, no. no. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just thought I'd throw that in there. I thought that was funny. Uh, just a couple of questions and observations, <clears throat> from, and I'll be finished with. Uh, we talked about this already. How does he know that the steak will be something else? Does the food change? Uh, like uh, the di- people playing the different parts. And in episode 22, I asked the question to Jimbo. We, we talked about this already a little bit. Have you ever had a reoccurring dream? Uh, then we talked about, do you remember the urban legend that if you fall in, if you have a, if you fall and hit the ground in your sleep, then you die in real life. Uh, we talked about w- any idea where that came from. We discussed that on that, on that episode, but uh, there are parallels uh, the repetitive dream to episode 22, but the differences being that there are numerous cues that foreshadow. If you remember from episode 22, Mrs. Powell or Miss Powell, there there are a number of cues that ultimately come to fa- to pass in a real fiery disaster. If you remember that episode at the very end, the plane room for one more, honey. Yeah, <laughs> so it's opposite in the fact that it's a reoccurring dream when she falls asleep. But inside of the dream, there are cues that lead to, uh, you know, a conclusion that is very horrifying. Um, so this is the opposite in the fact that, you know, he's stuck in, well, sort of a loop. And that brings me to my next point, and then I'll be finished. At first, I thought this was a dream on an endless loop, and Grant is trapped. But he does tell Richie that he wakes up every night in terror at the point of electrocution. Would this... This is the question. Would this be more akin to a Nightmare on Elm Street type scenario, or uh, where Freddy, uh, where he's, he, where Grant doesn't want to go to sleep because you know Freddy and fades his dreams, but his dreams are his own thoughts. So he tries desperately to stay to not fall asleep and stay awake throughout the day. I have this idea in my mind. But, if we continued the story, that Grant, if we saw him in his day to day life, he he just he avoids going to sleep. He wants to stay awake as long as he can because. 
the nightmare is just waiting yeah. for him. And that would be like a good twist in like a movie, not necessarily nightmare. Yeah. But like just like him, like in the third act, discovering he's not the architect of this constant nightmare he's having, and instead it's some other kind entity. of demonic force, yeah, some uh, kind of entity that's okay. that's yeah. forcing him through this torturous venture for some you know unknown or possibly unknowable reason. Yeah, you know, it would be a great twist in some other film. <laughs> yeah, in my yeah. mind's eye, I just see him like. Trying to stay busy during Just the Gary day, Busey and-, <laughs> and not and not have to fall asleep and uh, yeah, dreading going to sleep, constantly being exhausted anywhere he goes, yeah. and like like it's affecting his work life balance. You're like that too. His boss is mad at him for falling asleep, but you know for being drowsy at work. You know, those well, that'd be perchance a dream. Yeah, yeah, because well, he and well, remember he went to he ends up jumping out of the window right, right at the right. end. I think that's what ended up happening. To yeah. This guy, if, if it, to, to do anything on. to get out of being trapped. And then again, could you say it's also a form of purgatory? Yeah, that's also a good point too. And yeah. also, like the question would be like, you know, if he and that's why he couldn't really whole, yeah. place the priest. Hmm. Hmm. That's an interesting. That would be an interesting uh, idea too to kind of view there as well. And it's also kind of like raises like you know something like the ethical question, like maybe the only way he survives that night is if he dies in real life, and mm-hmm. then he'll be kind of. Not necessarily trapped, but also he would escape that dreamscape where he survives and gets to live a life inside that dreamscape that he's invented for himself. Or, you know, uh, and that'd be his only real relief. So it is like a glimpse of his own, like, pseudo afterlife to a degree, too. And once again, why he doesn't praise the priest? Because, you know. Do you think that he actually killed a man in real life and he's. Plagued with guilt, possibly. Plagued with guilt. So endless possibilities, yeah, that you could go with this. Uh, yeah, to, yeah. to add on. Or, yeah, it, it could definitely be a movie if you stretched it out, or at least an hour-long episode. Yeah, and, and there's so many ways you can go with it. Like, yeah, you can go into the meta-filmmaking route. You can go into the religious lot, religiosity route to it, where you can do like religious readings of it. Or you can go into, you know, a very you know, a front facing horror movie show of it. You know? I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Prop piece. Are you going to ask that question? Do what? The, the prop piece, piece question. I forget. Oh, yeah, I forgot. forgot. I did forget. <laughs> you did. I'm going to say the watch. I'm going to say Jigs's watch as a prop piece. Uh, are you? Not, not that that's... Kyle, what would you... Well, this is something we do on our episodes. I, now. I, I, I listen to a couple wow. episodes to prepare, and I immediately forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you take um, from this episode? The, the, I would take the stakes and have a good lunch. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, very good. I'd take the electric chair, I think. <laughs> yeah. Or the, the harmonica. Harmonica would be cool to have, too, because it would be, cool be yeah. something you could store. If the chair, I'd be sitting in that while we record every day. <laughs> There's no way that's a comfortable chair. That's an uncomfortable chair, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Filled my power. Yeah. All right. Well, ratings. Let's go. I'm, I'm, let me get armored up. Uh, Kyle, why don't you go ahead and... I'll take <laughs> Kyle, a, you do you want me to take it first? I'm not saying, be the yeah, tiebreaker, because yeah. I know we're, we're going to lean on this, but... Um, right. Yeah, I'm actually... I, I feel like I've warmed up to this film doing this Civic Podcast recording, where I feel like I finally got like the reading that I enjoyed about it. Um, so I, I'm laying up from it. This is probably... Um, <laughs> This is probably- yeah. He went from a two to a three. Don't get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To a one to a one point one. Yeah. Uh, no. So no, I probably moved from like a four or five to like overall like probably a strong seven. Actually, where like I feel overall pretty positive about this film. All right. Uh, like this episode and that uh, I think like it, it deserves to stand in the pantheon of other Twilight Zone episodes. I think it actually deserves its place now. That I've had time to both of you guys kind of explain to me some of the ideas and then me thinking about it a little bit more. I'm like, oh, actually, there's some deeper reads of this. 
that I can find intriguing for other um, creative aspects. So I really appreciate that on that level. So for me, yeah, seven out of ten. I think this episode's good. It's a good twelve out of seven. Want the final word? You want me to go? I'll go. You okay, Jimbo? You take it. Thrust it down. <laughs> I think it. this is a totally forgettable episode of the Twilight Zone. The only saving grace of it. <laughs> the only saving grace of this episode is the uh, cinematography. The shadows at the beginning, the shadow play, if you will, that they used for this episode is fantastic. The framing, camera work, and this the, is doing exactly, a lot of great work. The uh, walk down the green mile, if you will. Great. Um, it's just like some of the cast was all over the place. Like, I don't know if they were trying yeah, too hard or something. Roles. Well, no, I'm <laughs> talking about not not the main source that you see. Like the two guys, the one guy that's a drunk, you know, comes over and hey, that's my good gin. You know, yeah. and just it's just I guess a, a little bit more context for this episode would have went a long way um, because unlike other Twilight Zones where they only give you a little bit and the left is up to your own imagination or speculation, this one makes it hard to even speculate because there's so many things that are, are crazy about this. Um, I think... Um, I feel like this is like two or three drafts away from greatness, but it got pushed out too early. Like, exactly. Like Something it needed like more time in the oven, much like those like things. Like those things, <laughs> right. Um, so, so for me, uh, just for cinematography, I'm going to give it a four. Um, I don't... A four. A four. Really? That's right. not as hard as it could have been. I, I could have been a lot worse. Okay, a 4.2 for you, Eric. But, yeah, I... I even Adam's uh, Adam's role in this episode is not very good. It's not going to be. It, let me ask you this: at the end of our season, when we do the tragedies for this, not a top single, three. not it's a single person in, in this is going to be remembered in the greatest performance that we do. Why does the episode have to have a singular performance? I'm not saying, but what I'm saying is, when when I think about season two. I can I can name hands above at least eight episodes that are way better than this, maybe even more. I think I understand your point. Like, I, I I I think I'm appreciating more of what it was trying to do more than what it actually accomplished. And you're you're judging on what it accomplished, and not what it was trying to do. Yeah. So that's my. Take. I, I understand that take. I can respect it. All right, I respectfully disagree. No, <laughs> I'm gonna. Say I don't it. respectfully disagree. I just disagree with you, Barry. No, that's fine. You have no respect for anyone. That's, well, I, I do have to respect that. my elders. <laughs> so I guess I... Um, I'm gonna say that this is the quintessential Twilight Zone episode. I'm gonna say it's what the essence of what the Twilight Zone is. Uh, you know, if you wanted to define it, I think it's probably this episode. Uh, it's between shadow and light, you know. And there's a lot of episodes that uh, talk about dreaming, and they they've sort of this episode is sort of the culmination, kind of in my mind, of different episodes that have uh, approached the topic of dreams and reoccurring dreams. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I, I don't really have much more to say other than I give yeah. it at least an eight, maybe an eight five. I can't really think of I, these back to back. Uh, the silence in this, I mean, this is probably the best back-to-back that I can think of so far. Shadowplay and uh, The Silence. Uh, these great episodes being so close together. I love Silence episodes. Other than <laughs> Eye of the Beholder, which I still think stands out in Season 2 is the best episode. This is a top three in Season 2. I... I really like it, and I agree with you. If you're talking, you know, Twilight Zone like is nothing if not interesting. What if questions, you know? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Compared too. to some of the other ones that we've seen in season two, which you you prefer season one, 
you've made that known. Absolutely. Uh, this this is a highlight. This is a yeah. This is a highlight of season two in my mind. And I think I understand that where we're coming from that this could be extrapolated out into a much better story. Yeah. And when we get backstories, but unfortunately, Rod didn't have that luxury. He had twenty six minutes and. I mean, apparently the story was good enough to get published by Beaumont in the science fiction journal or whatever. Well, almost everything so he wrote got published in there. I think it's it, the story, uh, yeah, it stands yeah. pretty well, but it's, that's it, enough. I yeah. mean, It's undercooked. It's undercooked story. It's just, so, yeah. just like the mistakes. I like yeah. the like eight and a half. And we'll oh, you just went up to an eight and a half from an eight. What, huh? Eight and eight and a half, huh. yeah. yeah. Well, it's an eight. IMDB gave it it's an a eight strong one. I think that's one. fair. Yeah. So uh, with that, I'm... You ready to wrap? Got anything to wrap? And uh, no. Um, if you'd like to follow us on the uh, social medias, uh, you know where to find us. Uh, thanks, Kyle, for uh, stopping by yep. in the yep. fifth dimension for your first ever Twilight Zone. Privilege to have you, um, Eric. Thanks again for another job well done. Um, I think next week we have another zinger of an episode where the guy, if he thinks that he can make, finds that book and yeah, this one's a five. <laughs> Uh, maybe a four. <laughs> it's corny, campy. It's it's what, what have we always said? When Twilight Zone tries to do comedy, it just never ends well. Yeah. Except yeah. except uh, Mr. Dingle the Strong or whatever. That, <laughs> that was actually funny. Just and that's just because we all know who started that Burgess Meredith. So, well, with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap and cut. We know that a dream can be real. But who ever thought that reality could be a dream? We exist, of course, but but how? In what way? As we believe, as flesh and blood human beings, or are we simply parts of someone's feverish, complicated nightmare? Think about it. And then ask yourself, do you live here, in this country, in this world? Or do you live instead in the Twilight Zone?